0: Hello, thanks for choosing to listen to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman and my guest this week is Yannis Pitsiladis, Professor of Sport and Exercise Science. Yannis is also a member of the International Olympic Committee's Medical and Scientific Commission. He chairs the Science Commission of the International Federation of Sports Medicine, where he also sits on the Executive Committee. So pretty well placed to have an impact on some of the biggest issues in sport. We talked about his research, advances in anti-doping, the Castus Semenya case and a debate around alleged intersex athletes, and his ongoing project to try and find a way to break the sub two-hour marathon barrier completely within the rules. It's a fascinating interview with a University of Brighton professor who's playing a huge part in helping to solve some of sport's most pressing issues.
1: Well, I'm a failed athlete. Um, as a youngster, my dream was to go to the Olympic Games and I, I never achieved that. So I've done Done uh, the second best, which is to help others get there. I was a volleyball player, okay. um, played at a very high level in in Greece where I grew up, um, uh, and now I've dedicated my life to helping others get to the Olympic Games in a in a safe way, in a clean way, in a healthy way. Um, and in that journey, I've also realized that there's the dark side of sport, which is the doping issues, corruption, and more recently the realization that um, we need to try and find ways to fail integrate some of the interesting quirks of nature, for example, um, the recent Casas case with uh, intersex athletes, um, and also keeping in mind now with the uh, legislation in certain countries uh, permitting the third gender, which is basically you can declare what gender you, you identify, is how do we integrate uh, in a consistent way to the Olympic uh, Charter uh, these athletes with no discrimination and according to the law. So it's quite a complicated um, uh, agenda there, but uh, it keeps you awake at night and there's, there's never a dull moment.
0: Now we'll talk about Casas and intersex athletes in just a bit. You've been here at the university for a while now what attracted you here and and why does it work so well for you with all your other roles you have as well
1: yeah what attracted me here I remember at the interview was that uh, I was given the freedom to focus uh, entirely on sport and that may seem obvious but unfortunately research into sport doesn't attract the same kind of Uh, monies that, uh, let's say, uh, cancer research, biomedical research does. So a lot of the the traditional universities have have moved away from supporting sports science. Brighton is one of those universities who rightly, I believe, uh, see sport as being a, uh, an important discipline and a discipline of equal importance to the other uh, big disciplines like medicine and biomedicine and physiology and biochemistry and pharmacology and all the rest. Um, and I was given that freedom to invest in that area. And six years later, I feel vindicated for that decision because I'm working almost exclusively in sport but also bringing to it the kind of medical side. So it's understanding the limits to human performance, but also understanding the health side. Away from the university, can you just
0: explain the the roles that you have, the very high-profile roles you have elsewhere, such as the IOC?
1: I also realised more in the last few years that to really get my research from laboratory right through to the field when i say the field i'm talking about getting it into the olympic games getting into the world championships getting into the 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 world cup we need to be part of the system often uh, many of my colleagues will sit and critique the system from outside i've realized that by being inside the system you can actually help transform it and rebrand it so in the last years i've become a a member of uh, the international of the ioc's medical and scientific commission I chair the Science Commission of the International Sports Medicine Federation. I'm on the executive of the International Sports Medicine Federation. And in those roles, amongst others, it allows me to really assess the current status quo and bringing new technology. So, I mean, uh, I would argue I'm one of the the unique scientists in the world who actually does the science in the laboratory. That's my bread and butter, that's my passion. But I actually spend a lot of time as well attending committee meetings, commission meetings, being at big championships, big games, where I can try and bring in these technologies, try and bring in these new approaches, and also trying to rebrand sport in general. So, I mean, quite a unique position, but it's also quite a challenge to actually balance all these different balls. Okay, so let's talk
0: about how you're working to, to change some of those things. Then we'll uh, chat first of all about, well, cheating in sport, really, doping. You've been working on research, obviously, to find ways to beat the cheats. How easy is it at the moment for athletes to do that, to get away with doping?
1: Well, getting exact prevalence data of how big the problem is actually quite difficult, as you can appreciate. But only last year there was a, a publication that emerged that actually asked athletes at the highest level of competition whether they had doped in the last year. And uh, the questionnaire they used was based on a system that couldn't identify the individual. So it was one of the, the best ways to get to as close to the reality as possible. Um, and what was really worrying about the, the outcome was that in the two big competitions that were evaluated, one was the Pan-Arab Games and the other was the World Championships in Daegu, it transpired that um, 45% in, in, in one of those competitions and 30% in the other admitted to doping in the last year. So if you think of that data um, and keeping in mind that about 1% of athletes are actually caught doping, then actually you can see the kind of uh, mismatch there. So that tells me that the current system, which has improved dramatically over the years, thanks to the excellent work of the World anti Doping Agency, is still not uh, achieving the kind of levels of catching of the cheaters uh, as a public, Public would want and and, and us involved in, a, in elite sport would want too. So that means that what we have to do is think of how to build on the current system because we can't say the system is failing. It's just not working effectively. How can we build on it to make it more effective?
0: Mm. I guess part one of the problems might be that the measures in place around drug testing varies massively, doesn't it, from sport to sport. So is it naive to think that most of the sport we're watching is completely clean? I mean, how much do you think is going undetected? It's quite difficult to have that sort of, like a blanket approach to anti-doping, isn't it?
1: It's yeah. very difficult to to actually start breaking it down, even into different sport, or actually even different countries, you know, mm. uh, which is also another factor that we've got to take into account. Uh, but what is very, very clear is that doping is not, for example, a Russian problem. We hear every day, uh, even this last weekend, in, in the Times, there's a big article about how uh, you know, uh, Russia is is leading the world in terms of of doping, and and it's very clear from some data published in 2011 that uh, there are other countries uh, where doping is almost uh, at the same levels as what we had seen in Russia in recent years. And clearly, that uh, that prevalence of doping will vary in different sports. But my focus, uh, in terms of what I'm trying to do, is very much focus on Olympic sports, so focusing very much on the the sports that are in the uh, remit of the Olympic Games. And uh, the kind of flagship events for the Olympics are track and field. Those are the ones that most people tend to watch uh, during the Olympic Games. Tokyo is coming upon us very, very soon. I don't waste a moment uh, in my working and and sleeping time thinking of how we can actually clean-up uh, athletics in the in the first instance, because once we can do that, uh, then I think the other sports will also follow. I think, uh, unfortunately, the the kind of mantra at the moment that we hear every day is that the cheaters will be ahead of the testers. That's what we hear every day. My mantra is exactly the opposite, mm-hmm. that uh, the testers and uh, those of us who support the testers should be well ahead of the cheaters. And that's the paradigm shift that we are trying to bring into effect, and I feel with the recent developments, with the technological advancements that are happening and have been happening for the last five years, this is the time to do it. And if we don't do it now, the world's most valuable brand, sport, may have the same kind of end result that happened in ancient Greece with the Olympics. Because eventually, as, as we all know, the, the Olympic Games uh, were born in ancient Greece and eventually ended, ended because of corruption, drugs, all the kind of things that are happening now. So I'm also one of those academics that actually looks at history, tries to learn from history so we can improve the future.
0: Mm. So where are you at with your research and uh,
1: including what's going on within the University of
0: Brighton as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so what uh, what we launched actually almost a decade ago was uh, the idea that using uh, cutting edge genomic technology. So the the data that had emerged and the kind of technology know how that had emerged with the sequencing of the genome, which is now almost, is more than a decade old. How could we apply that kind of technology into anti doping? And uh, I spent most of that first 10 years trying to convince the system to invest in those technologies. Uh, you can appreciate that a decade ago, uh, sequencing the genome of one individual could cost uh, $50 million. You know, Now we can do it here in, in Brighton, for example, for £100. So you can see now it's become more amenable. Uh, we have a facility that uh, is, I would argue, in the area of sport and sports medicine, second to none. And that's been uh, uh, invested in by the World Anti-Doping Agency, has been invested in by the International Olympic Committee, invested in by some of the big biotech companies, very much trying to uh, help us use this uh, technology in sport and in anti-doping to try and cure the problem. And so I feel now, uh, when I say now, in the last year, it's all come together And sometimes from the least likely areas, we get investment. For example, we are very happy to announce uh, in in the next three weeks, in ancient Olympia, uh, the spiritual home of the Olympics, the big support from uh, one of the biggest biotech companies in the world, based in Shenzhen in China, a company called BGI, who's actually donating one of the top of the range new uh, sequences to help us try and clean up sport, so there's an example of Russian, uh, sorry, of, of Chinese technology, with actually some support from Russia as well, helping us being able to implement the the very best technology available in the world, um, and trying to direct that to sport. I mean, this is quite a unique position. Uh, often I wake up in the morning and I'm actually, tw- uh, you know, pinching myself, saying, "Is this really happening? Can I get to the end of this?" some of the best scientists in anti-doping will all come down to uh, Olympia in a few weeks' time to actually also discuss how can we use this technology. The solution is not going to be based on what we do only in in Brighton. It's going to be based on these international consortia, working together, bringing new blood into the field. And then once we can actually uh, implement these new approaches, then I think uh, we could also learn from this and use this technology to actually keep our athletes safe also in the Olympics. And into. In, in, in elite sport because we know there are all sorts of conditions that we hear about concussion that athletes are facing often the rules change and sometimes they surprise us. For example you would have seen in the in the in the Rio games in boxing the headgear was removed. Well you know we need this kind of technology to ensure that our decisions are actually the right ones. We're going to talk about shortly the situation with casus and the, the also the, um, how to, to integrate intersex athletes, how to integrate transgender athletes. Again, the same technology that we're going to be using to rebrand anti-doping can also be used to develop the biomarkers that makes the integration of, ca- of the likes of casus mania, uh, the transgender athletes, fair. So I think we're in uh, the most exciting times in my career in sports science and sports medicine, we are, we are, I'm living that time now, um, and you can sense from my voice how excited I am.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a very, very exciting time for, for anti-doping in general. Um, I, mean, I mean, we've had the narrative around Russia for the last couple of years about state-sponsored doping. Clearly, Russia is still banned from athletics. They've been banned from competing as a country at the last few Olympics as well. With their athletes having to be having to to compete as neutrals, we're just one year away from the Tokyo Games. At this point, has enough changed for Russia to compete at those games?
1: Well, I can tell you from my side what my involvement in that process, um, and I at this stage I think I have to uh, just uh, summarize what is called the Brighton model. The Brighton model to try and um, uh, make sport fair involves three pillars. And the kind of analogy we use is a three-legged stool. The first pillar we call prevention of doping. And that's very much the kind of educational processes, the deterrence in, in uh, anti-doping, for example, keeping um, urine, blood, etc., stored for as long as 10 years. And we, we can't predict the developments of science in, uh, week to week. Can we really predict what's going to happen in 10 years? So that's the first pillar. The second um, uh, pillar is promotion of, of, uh, of clean sport, which very much involves better testing. The third pillar, which is equally important, is giving athletes alternatives to drugs. We can't keep on uh, directing to athletes and saying, bad boy, bad girl, you've been cheating sport is big business in certain parts of the world it's the only way out of poverty so we need to modernize our thinking and we need to give athletes the setup required the support they need to perform at the very highest level achieve their potential within the rules and clean those three pillars of what are what we've implemented in the last 18 months in russia I've now visited Russia three times in the last 18 months, working closely with the Russian Olympic Committee, working very closely with uh, the the Russian anti-doping authorities, and I can tell you their efforts are as good as the very best elsewhere in the world and supported by actually UK anti-doping. For example, mm-hmm. the, the Russian Doping Authority is very much being supported by UKAD and modernizing and rebranding them and changing that culture. So I feel that, um, and actually in the next few weeks, uh, I publish a paper, a perspective on the efforts that Russia has done in order to come out the other side. Obviously, there's more work to be done. But my view, and I think this, others will share this view, is rather than kicking someone when they're down, is that you've got to try and help them get up. Get up in a way that um, uh, you know allows them to come back to the table. And I feel that um, uh, a lot of that change has happened. Um, and yes, we still have some time to go to Tokyo. It's coming, coming very, very fast. But I feel optimistic, and I hope anyway that uh, they can turn the corner with the support of various organizations around the world and we can see clean Russian athletes competing. I know that's what they want. I speak to the Russian athletes, I speak to the coaches, I speak to those involved in sport and uh, I speak to the young anti-doping officers who are very much involved in in, in touring one of the biggest countries in the world, Russia, to try and preach anti-doping. It's a very tough job. And I'm very impressed what they're doing, but obviously there needs to be more work to be done there. Yeah, but you feel that the penny has dropped now. There's no doubt in my mind that the penny has dropped for some time now. And I even believe that uh, the efforts that Russia is doing in the next five years could be a model for other countries to actually emulate. I know some of your listeners will be saying, what is he talking about? Well, I go to Russia. I see things on the ground firsthand. I'm not getting my information from the media. I'm not getting my information second and third hand. I'm there, I'm speaking to the people involved. I see their trauma, I see their hurt. Uh, I see the aspiration of young people. And I'm confident that in the next years um, that we will see a reformed Russia and I hope also a rebranded sport globally. Okay. Well, that would be big.
0: Let's talk about your research with transgender athletes, something which is going on here at the University of Brighton. This sort of study obviously links with what's going on at the moment with Casta Semenya, South Africa's multiple world and Olympic gold medalist. Not transgender, of course, but a female athlete with abnormal levels of the male hormone testosterone. Uh, for those that don't know, she's an 800-metre specialist who has just had a rule enforced by athletics world governing body, the IAAF, temporarily suspended Suspended. That rule ordered her to take testosterone-limiting medication if she wants to continue racing at her preferred distance.
1: It's topical at the moment. We, uh, the world of uh, the world is watching how the IWF deal with uh, the Semania case in terms of of intersex. Um, uh, it's a very difficult case um, uh, in the sense that. Um, If I was an expert on her uh, supporting her side of events, I could easily argue a case. I could easily argue a case against her. That's how difficult the situation is. So I have complete empathy uh, for the fact that she doesn't want to take any forms of drugs to actually be able to compete. In one sense, you can actually see the problem. I've I've spent my whole career fighting for drug-free sport. And now I'm one of those scientists advocating that we use drugs to allow her to compete fairly. So you can see the conundrum, you can see the uh, the difficulty there. But at the end of the day, the way I see this, and this is the the, the effort and the the kind of paradigm that we use here at the University of Brighton, is say okay... Um, uh, what does the law say? And the law in many countries, and those and the number of those countries is increasing, is that, you know, uh, whatever you self-identify, that is your right uh, in terms of transgender, but also in terms of intersex. Uh, we have to also keep in mind the Olympic Charter, which states very, very clearly there should be no discrimination of any sort in terms of gender, sex, religion, etc., uh, etc., And the third aspect that I consider is what does the science say? I have to admit here that there's very, very little data. So when there's situations where there's very little data that allows uh, everyone to become an expert. That allows the media, some in some ways, to become the expert. And that allows uh, someone, just because they've competed in the Olympic Games or co- competed in elite sport, to become an expert. Well, that doesn't qualify you as an expert. What qualifies you as an expert is um, really understanding the data, generating new data, and presenting a multidisciplinary solution. And that's what we're trying to do. So on the the basis of all this, having realized that there isn't sufficient amount of data, or actually very little data, we've been working very hard in the last uh, 12 months. We've been supported by the International Olympic Committee and by WADA, the World End Doping Agency, to generate for the first time, the compelling data we need to help us provide as fair as possible a recommendation. And that's what we're doing. And briefly, to summarize what we're doing in Brighton, we we are doing two big studies. The first one is understanding what is called the muscle memory. I'm jumping around a little bit, but if we consider an athlete who goes to the Olympic Games as a male, and then the next Olympic uh, Games identifies as a female, they have the right to go to the games and if we go along with uh, uh, what, what the IFF is saying at the moment, to actually limit their testosterone levels to below 5 nanomoles per liter, will that be sufficient? Because one has to appreciate that for throughout their adult life, until they made the transition, muscle was working in a hormonal milieu of very high testosterone levels, the levels of a male. Now, working in a, in a, in a milieu, hormonal milieu of a female, but has the muscle now converted into female? Now, that's obviously very simplistically, and I'm using uh, this kind of jargon very loosely, but that is a big issue, and it's called the muscle memory aspect. And that's what the uh, World Doping Agency wants us to focus on. Why? It also has anti-doping implications. If you think about athletes that take drugs like testosterone, do those drugs have long-lasting effects throughout one's life? We know of some cases uh, where athletes have actually taken testosterone served their band and come back to elite sport. Well, when they came back, even if they were clean when they came back, could testosterone that they had five years ago, six years ago, still be having an effect through this issue of muscle memory? Also, let's be more specific about Cassie case. You know, she's been competing um, as an intersex athlete. We don't know all her medical uh, condition per se, but let's assume that uh, her testosterone works in, uh, and meaning that she's had high levels of testosterone. The, uh, the question is, that she's already therefore benefited from that high level of testosterone, which means even now if she reduces testosterone, there could, be, there could still be that residual effect, which will well, still gives her an advantage. So one could argue that even now, if she was prepared to lower her testosterone levels, to compete as we say now fairly, she could still have an advantage from having high levels of testosterone for most of her adult life. So these are the issues that we are studying uh, with support from the World anti Doping Agency and from the International Olympic Committee. More recently, uh, in the last uh, few months, we've also been supported uh, by the International Olympic Committee to do one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, transgender studies. It's actually called the Tavistock Transgender Athlete Study, Um, and from the name you can sense where we're doing this. We're doing it uh, at the Tavistock uh, Gender Clinic um, uh, in London in collaboration with the University of Brighton, where for the first time we're taking 20 males who will transition to female and 20 females who will transition to male. We're going to do all the tests we we consider uh, uh, necessary before the transition and then during the transition, and, and, and we'll follow them for as many years as they will consent, to really understand the transition process. Also, for the first time, to really understand what happens to performance at the moment there's some data making some kind of uh, assumption as to what could happen to performance but we don't really know and so this study will allow us for the first time to actually document really the impact of the transition process and the impact of sex hormones on performance but also on issues like muscle memory on issues of bone health uh, and on other issues that will really help us produce those solutions required to clean up sport, rebrand sport, and to fairly integrate both two very different conditions, intersex and and transgender athletes into elite sport.
0: Talking about Casta Semenya, she appealed the Court of Arbitration for Sport's decision to enforce the IAAF's ruling, but a Swiss court has now temporarily suspended that enforcement. So she's now free to compete. But this is clearly not over, just the latest development. There's some strong quotes from Semenya saying, I am a woman and world-class athlete, and then saying the IAAF will not drug me. I guess, like you say, there are people who may be placing themselves as experts, but there's also a view from some on the outside that this is ethics against science. And that's the issue. Because we've seen three global organisations that promote women's sports who have written to the IAAF claiming the rules that they're trying to enforce upon athletes like Semenya are discriminatory and enforce gender inequality. But then you've also got athletes competing against Casta Semenya who feel they've had an opportunity for their own success taken away. It's really tough, isn't it?
1: you've uh, you've r- beautifully summarized the situation and i have i have real empathy for castasmania uh, in the sense as i said early on i could easily and, and the likes of myself could easily defend her position so i totally get that and um, at the same time what we have to do and uh, from my position in the in the science commissions uh, of the ioc and also in uh, in fems is to also consider the other athletes, the athletes that she'll compete against. And it's got to do to try and balancing all these competing interests. Um, uh, and you talk about how uh, ethics and science may be uh, separate. No, not at all. You know everything we do in the sci- as uh, in terms of the scientific process requires the strongest ethics. So that is never far away from our mind. Uh, in our uh, studies that I described before, we have some of the world's top bioethicists advising us on all of these things, and some of the and some of the best lawyers at the same time looking at the legal side of things. So our approach here at Brighton is very much a multidisciplinary one. So going back to Caster's case, I say I fully, fully understand her but i think her case is the uh, is the perfect example of how of what we can call the fluidity of gender you know because it's not as simple as i'm male or i'm female there's fluidity there and at the moment, uh, and for the foreseeable future, most of Olympic sport will be the male competitions and the female competitions. Interestingly, in Tokyo now, we'll have a number of events that will be mixed. So clearly, even there, the IOC is trying to modernize. But in the events that, uh, uh, that uh, Casta Semenya wishes take part, they are very much, and for, for good reasons, separate into male and female. Why is that done? That is done to try and make competition fair. Now, in her case, being an intersex athlete, so it's not as simple as she's a woman or a man, she's an intersex athlete, which makes her integration more complicated and not as simple as I'm a woman or I'm a man. Uh, And therefore... That is why it becomes so difficult. And don't get me wrong, the scientific community is not united in what I'm saying. I don't know what the numbers are, but probably uh, as much as maybe fifty percent of the scientific commu- community will not agree with what I'm saying. But what I've also done though to just to try and understand the other fifty percent is I've been on a tour for the last 12 months proposing or assessing our proposition, which happens to to be the similar. A proposition to what the IAAF have actually uh, are turning into a rule and I've I've gone to the, um, uh, the sports medicine congresses. I actually gave a talk here in Brighton together with Joanna Harper presenting our solution and we've actually published only a few months ago the outcome of asking the audience after we presented the best of what was available in terms of data, what do you think I can tell you the data, 73% of the audience agreed that what we were proposing, which happens to be what the IAAF were proposing, is the better of the solutions. Mm. You know, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. But what we have to think about is the Olympic Games are happening very soon. Actually, the World Championships in Doha are are happening this year in a few weeks' time. So what can we do now? Clearly, whatever solution is proposed, and I'm not here to, to actually say what that will be, um, but whatever solution is proposed will be fluid. We can relook at it again and again and again as new data emerges, as we learn more, and then let's make the, the most fair decision possible for Castor and her likes, so that they can compete fairly, but also for all the other athletes.
0: Let's talk about something which is um, a little bit less controversial, a bit more fun, pretty exciting as well, the sub two-hour marathon project. Your one project, and there is also a very high-profile other project which is going on as well. How close are we to seeing a sub two hour marathon?
1: It was actually a project that we launched in 2014, and maybe your listeners won't be aware of this, that we launched as an anti-doping project. This project started uh, very much supporting the third pillar of our Brighton anti-doping approach, which is peak performance without doping. But we had the same problem that the Russians have, and that is how to convince a system that believes and we talk about, when we talk about the system, we talk about the athletes, the managers, the coaches, the support teams that believe that the only way to success is through drugs. So what we thought of, can we break what in 2014 was considered crazy, this two-hour barrier? And so we launched the project together with um, uh, Jos Hermans from Global Sport, and we started putting the consortium together. In that process, however, uh, it became clear that there was a lot of money to be made and uh, Jos Hermans joined the Nike team, the breaking two project, um, and the $30 million that were gonna come to our sub two project for anti-doping project became the breaking two project, which became very much about innovation. We saw the fantastic uh, Elia Kipchoge almost breaking the two hour barrier in Monza in 2017. But what, what it really did though, it made him and others believe that the two hour was possible which meant he went on to break the, uh, the world record and smash the world record in Berlin last year. That, I think, was a big influence of this crazy idea that we had or I had back in 2014, more recently now because Nike has made as much publicity as they can from selling uh, this 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 uh, new innovative shoe series which indeed is fantastic by the way and there's other d- issues we can discuss about whether it is actually fair to have a carbon fiber plate in a shoe but for me uh, it's innovation and uh, you know if, if and and in uh, the spirit of universality of sport if it's universally available to others I think it's it's a move in the right direction it's replacing drugs with technology and, uh, and we can have another debate this some other time but more recently Recently, what has happened now that Nike have pulled out of that race, um, uh, I found out like uh, like most of your listeners in the media, um, uh, the one of the richest uh, individuals in in uh, in the UK is not supporting the Brighton sub two anti doping project, but. The previous project, just in the the guise now of um, INEOS to try and break this barrier in London later on this year, as you can tell, I have uh, mixed feelings about Mm. it. But what I think will be fantastic, though, is that it has brought that discussion to the fore, which means the same day that INEOS uh, announced the attempt... We received two uh, serious uh, um, declaration of interest to support our project, because our big project has been a lack of funding, Uh, but we've made big progress. The innovations that we've generated are the same innovations, or some of them are, that actually Elia Kipchoge used to break the, the, the world record in Berlin. The same innovations, like for example, the encapsulated carbohydrate drink that we here at the University of Brighton developed with one of our PhD students, that innovation was what helped him do that amazing event uh, race in Monza or the the, the great performance in Monza. It was the same innovation that helped him break the Berlin record. And I'm pretty sure he'll be using that innovation as well when he attempts a two-hour in London later on this year. So I feel that with this race now, this idea coming to the fore, I hope that uh, some uh, wealthy business uh, person in in the audience will hear about this. I've just come from a a meeting in uh, Tel Aviv in Israel where a few weeks ago, where it was the first time with the Nike Breaking 2 project and the original Sub2 project ourselves, were actually debating about the merits of the idea. And it was actually very interesting to do that. And even at the end of that day, I got another declaration of interest and support from, from Israel. One of the innovations we wanted to do is to actually do the attempt on the Dead Sea Uh, Why the Dead Sea? Because there's approximately 5% extra oxygen, given the fact that uh, it's such uh, low altitude. So therefore, that idea that we launched back then may actually be the end of the story eventually, where we can break that barrier within the rules on the Dead Sea. And that's what we're working towards now. And I think the attempt later on this year, which won't be, from what I I hear, according to the rules, uh, will help us, I believe, get support so we can demonstrate that we can do amazing things, therefore really help athletes fulfill their potential cleanly and rebrand the whole idea and move away from drugs. When you say about um, the
0: rules with Elliot Kipchoge is obviously going to be going for this again. Are you saying without the, the pacing teams, is that what you mean? Do you want to do a, an attempt without multiple paces is that what you're saying something or
1: absolutely i mean one of the issues is pacing um as you know uh, from what we saw in monza um there was a group of pacemakers that were coming in and out you know um uh, and that's clearly not allowed by the rules um and so what we are wanting to do um, and that was the idea right from the start when we launched the project is within the sub to team to have uh, the very best athletes involved in the in the attempt as a race where the one will be helping the other and that they all actually share um, the the prize at the end so they it's to their benefit that the team actually crosses that line uh, almost what happens in cycling and that kind of approach um, and, and and for that kind of approach you can't have a situation where people enter the race and, and leave the race uh, so they need to be in from the beginning and we believe and I, and and also what I've learned since 2014, is that whenever uh, we developed an innovation, whenever we talked about it, it was immediately adopted by the opposing teams. So there's two new innovations uh, that I think will make the difference to allow us to do it within a competitive situation that I can't mention um, because I'm pretty sure either Ineos team or the, the next guys of that team will try and do before we have the money to do it. We are confident, our steering committee are confident that we can do that within the rules with two innovations um, uh, that I can't share, share with your listeners.
0: Well, that sounds very exciting. I guess the, the other issue is finding the right athlete. Hypothetical situation. Let's say Eliot Kupchoge goes sub two with this project and he does it within these the different parameters. Could you maybe tempt him on board to come into your one as well? Because he's obviously he is, he is sensational, isn't he? He is, he is the best marathon runner out there at the moment.
1: It's a, it's an it's an interesting question, and your listeners may be interested to know that um, uh, I'd been studying and working with Elliot uh, for many, many years before the breaking to attempt. And even before the breaking to attempt was, even, even dreamt about, I'd invited him to join this original Sub2 project. I mean, at that time, you you got to appreciate that his manager was was a equal partner to our project, um, and, and he was also going to help produce the legacy for Kenya, where the Elliot, uh, uh, let's say, Innovation Center in Kenya would be there to produce legacies uh, for Kenya, where you would have Kenyan sports nutritionists, Kenyan physiotherapists, why not Kenyan managers, etc., etc., and we had discussed that uh, in Athens uh, some years ago when he was awarded uh, the best marathon of the year, his first award some years ago. So um, unfortunately, then money came into play. And 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 obviously, if you if you have been offered uh, huge financial incentives uh, by Nike, uh, which was always his sponsor, then I can see, I mean, I, I don't I don't hold it against him or his manager that he had to go and, and do this for Nike. So I'm pretty confident I'm actually surprised that the, the breaking tube uh, didn't break the two-hour barrier in Mons. I, I was uh, commentating at the time, and I was, I'd, I was uh, certain that they would break it. Uh, I think they didn't, and actually in Israel a few weeks ago, now I realized why they didn't break it as well. Uh, the scientist who was presenting uh, the approach talked about how they were trying to maintain his body weight within a 2% weight loss. Well, if that is right, then it's exactly what you don't want to do. I would argue if he was 5%, or 6%, or 7%, or 8%, or even 10%, if he had a 10% weight loss by the end of that attempt, he would have become more efficient and he would have smashed that two hour. So for me, therefore, London is, is uh, as long as they do things and have learned from their previous attempts, some of the team will be the same, I'm, I'm confident they will do it. What I want to propose to Elliot and the likes of Elliot after that is say, well, join us and let's do it within, within the rules. You made an interesting comment there about uh, Elliot being the best distance run of all time. I would like to disagree with you. And I think his manager, um, Jos Hermans, who knows as a previous world record holder himself, really understands these athletes better than anyone else in the world. I've done a lot of measurements uh, in, in the likes of Elliot, in the likes of Kenisa Bekele and others. And for me, Kenisa Bekele, for me, is another notch up in terms of talent. The reality is that Elliot is the most professional athlete in distance running of all time. Combine that with his exceptional talent, you see what you have. But I think the likes of Kenisa Bekele, and I've been in touch with him even in the last few days, saying, Kenisa, you know, you will be the guy who will be remembered as the one who could have. Uh, and if you don't do this now, you may regret it for the, the rest of your life. And that's the kind of language I used in my exchanges with him. And so if we can get the support required, I would like to see the likes of Elliot Kipchoge, Kenisa Bikeli, Wilson Kipsang, who uh, let's keep in 2017, together with Kipsang, we nearly, the Sub2 project, we nearly broke the, the world record in Tokyo. He's a fantastic talent put those kind of athletes together in a team, with with those innovations that I can't talk about, we can do something really special and beyond, and produce the legacy in Africa, in Ethiopia, and Kenya, and beyond, and replace drugs with science, medicine, so when you visit Ethiopia, when you visit Kenya, you can see the real legacy of the projects like the Breaking 2, the Ineos project, the original Sub 2, so that drugs are eradicated i i'm so uh, distraught when back in 2007 i could find epo being sold in the corner where well, i can go back now in 2019 it's epo sold on the corner now that is not what we want but where are the best athletes in the world currently living in training whether they're kenyan or ethiopian or british where does mofara train he lives predominantly now in ethiopia We need to create the legacy in these countries to clean up sport. It's pointless only having the best anti-doping practice in in the UK, in Russia, in Germany, in Tokyo. We need it out in the field, and we need to give these athletes alternatives. That is what the Sub2 project is about. That is what we need to do, and I'm confident... That a holistic approach that I talked about before, prevention of doping, promotion of clean, of, of, uh, of the clean athlete, and peak performance without doping, that is a paradigm shift that's required. And that is what I think will produce the rebranding of sport that we all need.
0: Mm. I, I'm fairly sure a lot of running fans are going to be salivating at the idea of a super team like you were just talking about. I mean, that would just be just incredible and when you can reveal the innovations we'll have to come back and talk to you about them when that time comes just coming back to your university work just very briefly what is it that attracts you to actually come to a university to work within higher education to sort of to teach
1: students as well that's an excellent question and um, uh, there are a number of reasons one I'm passionate about uh, conveying my science to young people when i lecture i'm acting i'm acting i'm trying to really enthuse them and 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 make science uh, as interesting as it can be because it is so very much interesting and and for example trying to teach about muscle physiology if you're uh, talking about Usain Bolt's muscle, it becomes so much more interesting. If you're trying to understand about uh, genetics and 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 therefore talk about the 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 impact slavery may have had on uh, genetic superiority uh, and 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 dispelling that myth, okay, makes genetics interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I came to a university. I became an academic because of my passion in in order to teach. But I wanted to teach things that I knew about. Firsthand, So I didn't get enough satisfaction of just reading about other people's work and talking about that. We always do that, of course, but I want to talk about my research and uh, the work that we've been doing over the last 25 years or so. And the university sector is the best place to be able to do research where you can decide what you want to do. And you're not dictated by industry or dictated by other interests. And that's also the reason why I left a Russell Group university like Glasgow University to come to Brighton. Why? I came here because I was given the freedom to really focus on my passion, which is sports science and sports medicine, and to do it freely without someone telling you, you have to study this. at the end of the day, if if one is motivated by money, they wouldn't become a university professor. I became a university professor because that allows us freedom to express your ideas, to research where you're interested in, And for me, uh, what is also unique about Brighton is that we have some of the most amazing technology, I would argue, in the world of sports science and sports medicine, in the most beautiful uh, surroundings, Uh, geographically one of the most important parts of the UK we we only an hour and a half away from uh, from from Gatwick uh, Heathrow Airport should I say Gatwick is even closer half an hour or so Uh, so for me this should be the mecca of sports science and sports medicine and let's work with industry rather than dictated by industry and that independence is why I became a university professor why I'm here at the University of Brighton, um, uh, and it's a decision I've never regretted.
0: Right. Uh, At the end of every podcast, we ask some quick fire questions away from work. So the first question is, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: The advice I'd give a younger myself would be um, uh, try and do the things that you want to do, even if that may take you down a path that you may have not thought of, because if you don't do what you really wish to do, you may regret it for the rest of your life. So have no um, uh, regrets. Um, that is what I would argue to, the, to a younger me. Can you
0: pick a favourite place in Sussex?
1: My favourite place in Sussex uh, is Eastbourne, where I, where I have my facility, my laboratory, my home, um, and where very few people know me, so I can also have quiet that I need to... Contemplate my ideas. I run on the uh, on the on the beachfront. I run on the downs, and uh, a lot of my ideas emerge when I'm actually almost alone. There's nowhere better than uh, Eastbourne and surrounding areas.
0: What are you currently reading, watching, and or listening to? Doesn't need to be all three.
1: I'm very much uh, uh, watching at the moment how um, uh, the companies like Tesla. Uh, and related companies are trying to get their driverless cars not to hit people or uh, not to drive into poles, etc. Because I believe the same kind of approach will be used uh, to modernize sports. So it's related to what I do and I'm watching what they're doing and I'm trying to learn from them. So uh, my life tends to be quite boring, which is very much uh, focused on, on understanding how I can become better in the science I do from those who are better than me. Describe your perfect weekend. My perfect weekend uh, is sitting in a uh, in a vehicle, following my uh, top athlete uh, who's competitive and wins the race with our innovations, um, as happened in uh, in Berlin in in uh, in two thousand and sixteen. So for me, that's the perfect weekend.
0: If you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why?
1: Socrates. Archimedes and Darwin and I would sit them around the table and I would try and understand how in their times they could come up with things that today we take for granted but for them was almost seeing far so far into the future and I'd like to see and understand what made them tick how how they how they were able to do what they did because everything we do today is based on their ideas and i would argue that if we had half the insight they have imagine what we could do so they are quite remarkable and i I would love to be able to have a dinner with them.
0: A big thank you to Yanis for his time. He'd only been back from Australia for a few days when we recorded that. Remember, you can like and subscribe to these podcasts via Spotify and Apple Podcasts or search University of Brighton on your favoured podcast app. And please do spread the word too on social media. Thanks for listening.